Well, good morning, Door Creek. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team, and it's good to have you joining us today. We always like to say wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, this is a great place for you. We're a Christ-centered church for all people, and our desire is to see the power of God's love for us expressed in the gospel, continually transforming our lives, doing a good work in our city, renewing our city, and actually bringing change to the world through our partnerships, like the one we just heard about in Haiti. So um, superstitions. Um, ah, before I get into superstitions, can I say this? I am so glad to be back. It is so good to be back. And I am so grateful for the wonderful people that I get to do ministry with, like Adam and his teams that come and lead us every week here in worship, and like a great teaching team, right? Man, I was so encouraged to hear the reports and then hear the messages myself of the powerful message in our series, Big Mistake. Now about superstitions. <laughs> you know, we all have them. Athletes have a lot of them. I don't know if you know this, that Michael Jordan, one uh, perhaps the greatest basketball player of all time, always wore his North Carolina Tar Heel practice shorts under his uniform because he believed they brought him good luck. There are pitchers who before any game that they pitch, they'll always go and eat at the same restaurant. Super superstitious in sports. Serena Williams always tied her laces the same. Yesterday she did this. Before every first serve, she would bounce the ball five times. Do you know anything about Giannis's preparation for a day, a game day? It's, it's uncanny to the minute from his two and a half hour uh, nap to going to the stands and doing this chest thing here right before the game starts. Superstitions, not just in athletes, not just in America. I mean, we've got some, right? We got lucky numbers. We got lucky socks. We got lucky charms. We cross our fingers. We knock on wood, right? We make wishes over things like chicken bones and turkey bones and shooting stars and all kinds of things, right? There's rabbit foot. I, I don't know if you've seen any rabbit feet lately, but when I was growing up, Kids carried rabbit feet in their, in their pockets. I know, it's a little weird. We probably can't do that. It's politically incorrect. But anyways, <laughs> we used to do that. You know, thinking it brought us good luck. Get this culturally for good luck. In Denmark, you save your broken dishes so that on New Year's Day, you throw your broken dishes at your friends and family. It's a sign of good luck. Who knew? Who knew? In Spain, you eat 12 grapes at the stroke of midnight, bringing in the new year, and supposedly in red underwear. Anybody from Spain? Tell me if this is true. One grape for every stroke of the clock. Um, in China, they believe the good luck comes through the front door, and so they sweep all the house and all the clutter and dirt in the house to the middle, and they make sure on New Year's they take it out the back door so that more good luck can come in. In Russia, nothing about New Year's, but this will transform how you see your patio furniture this summer, that they see a bird dropping as good luck. Oh, man, oh, it's my lucky day. So God's people back then and today can be guilty of actually bringing superstition into our relationship with God, kind of a superstitious faith, which is the title of the message today. Grab your Bible, it's 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 
1 Samuel chapter 4. So it's kind of towards the beginning of your Bible. If you're new to the Bible, just look at it. In the table of contents, you'll get there more quickly. It's right after Ruth. It's before the book of Kings. We have First and Second Samuel. It originally was just one scroll. It's divvied down into books and chapters and verses for our aid in study. I'm going to read the whole story in chapter 4. First Samuel chapter 4. Now, and Samuel's word came to all Israel, verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, which means stone of help, and the Philistines at Aphek, which means fortress. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who's enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all the shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you'll be subject. You'll be slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head, signs of mourning. When he arrived, there was Eli, sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town set up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died. For he was an old man, and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. 
As she was dying, the women attending her said, don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. I want us to do a little background here in the geography and the history, the main characters and the kind of the spiritual background. So here's a map that kind of sets the stage. We're, we're in Israel. Here's Jerusalem right here. The battle's right up here between Aphek and Ebenezer. When they go and get the, the ark, it's in Shiloh. That, that's where the tent of meeting was. That was the religious center of Israel. This is the period of the judges. Eli and Samuel were the last judges. So Eli has been ruling as a judge for 40 years. And what we know about this period historically and spiritually is this. There's this downward spiral in the book of Judges and seven times the people of God keep turning away from God. He raises up an enemy to get their attention. He raises up deliverer, and then they fall back again. And there's this sad epitaph that describes the days of the judges. It reads like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's not a good thing when God's people are deciding what is right and wrong, and in their own eyes making that decision. So Eli is both a priest and a judge. He is the leader. He's old, he's 98, he's heavy. There's part of the story earlier of why he might be heavy. We'll get to that in just a bit, and it has to do with his sons and their practice. Speaking of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, if you go back in chapter 2, you find out these guys are reckless. These guys are careless. These guys are corrupt spiritual leaders. They are bad guys. They were greedy. They were selfish. They were gluttonous. They were taking the offerings, the meat that was brought for sacrifice to be a burnt offering. They were having their servants take the prime cuts. Like that looks like some good prime rib there. I think I'll take that tenderloin here before it was ever offered as a sacrifice. And, and, and it, it was showing contempt for the holy things of God. They were sleeping with women who served at the temple, and they were under God's judgment. We read in chapter 3, verse 1, that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And then comes Samuel. And the very first word of the Lord that he gives to God's people through Samuel is actually a word of judgment against Samuel and his house. And he basically says, I'm going to wipe out your house. And there's going to be no more priests coming from your line. I'm going to make the ears of people tingle when they hear the news referencing the story and history that we just read. And so the word comes to Samuel, who's the beginning of this story, and that's a whole other story we're not going to get into, who's, remember, his mother was infertile. She prays to God. She has, I guess I'm telling you now. She has, <laughs> I know. It's been a while since I've preached. Okay, 
So she's infertile. She prays to God. She has a son promising, if I have a son, I'll give him back to you. He's actually raised in Eli's house, and God calls on him. And so it was recognized at the end of chapter 3, it says that everybody knew from Dan to Beersheba, from California to New York, that Samuel was God's prophet, that God was speaking to him. And so the chapter opens with that word, that phrase, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. In other words, God's word through Samuel was being proclaimed at that time. The interesting thing is, even when they asked the question in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 3, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Nobody is looking for the prophet of God and the word of God. He's noticeably absent from our story. So here's what we're going to do. Our take today is to let's note the mistake. Let's understand the missteps that lay behind it underneath. How did they get there? How would we make the same kind of mistake? And what's the lesson or the lessons to be learned? All right. So let's just start with the big mistake. They mistakenly thought the Ark of the Covenant alone, the very symbol of God's presence, would give them victory over their enemies if they simply just brought it into battle. So here's how we could put it. They trusted in a symbol instead of God. And in doing so, they exchanged the true worship for God for a superstitious faith. They kind of had this rabbit foot religion now. And their rabbit foot, their shooting star, if you will, was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, to be sure, the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God, the Ark of the Lord, Yahweh, as it's referenced in the Bible, was no ordinary symbol. This was one of a kind. God said, Moses, you are to build this Ark of the Covenant. He gave him specific instructions with which Bezalel, we're told, this artist and craftsman, he crafted it out, overlaying it all in gold. It was this Ark of the Covenant led God's people across the Jordan River. And we see this beautifully illustrated here in this painting by a guy named Benjamin West that the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant with those acacia poles through the gold rings and the poles are even overlaid with gold. Everything about this chest is overlaid inside and outside with gold. It was two and a half cubits long. A cubit is about this, 18 inches, right? Like a really nice smallie, all right? So it's 45 inches long. It's a cubit and a half high, so that's 27 inches high. It's 27 inches wide. On top of it is the mercy seat, this cover, because it's a chest. And inside the chest, there are the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, right? And you've got the jar of manna to remind God's people that God is a provider. He did it every day for 40 years in the wilderness. And for a time in Israel's history, they also included Aaron, the high priest, first high priest rod that budded this, this dead piece of wood 
that, that had life given to it as the buds came out, letting everybody know that Aaron was God's true prophet. And so the mercy seat had these two cherubim, these two angels with their wings spread like this, looking down over the, the chest, the Ark of the Covenant, touching each other. And it was in that very place where God's manifest presence would settle down. This chest was in the Holy of Holies. This chest, as, as the tabernacle was built and the instructions were given, this was the place where Moses would go and hear the word of God, Numbers chapter 7. We, we read this in uh, Exodus. What's this verse here about? Here it is. They're above the cover between the two cherubim. They're over the Ark of the Covenant Law. God says, I will meet with you and give you all my commands of the Israelites. So this is God's presence on earth. This is where God's voice is heard. Moses heard God speak there. This is heaven and earth intersected right there over the Ark of the Covenant. So not an ordinary piece of furniture, not an everyday symbol. It was a powerful image of God's presence. It was described as the throne or the footstool to God's throne. So that's their mistake. They didn't turn to God. They turned to something that represented God, to the Ark of the Covenant, not to their covenant-making God, note the mistake. How do you get there? How did they get there? Well, we don't need to use conjecture. Conjecture. We know from the text these things. Number one, there is com compromised spiritual leadership in a big way, which may explain when they faced a big challenge, when they're on the other side of a defeat, they didn't turn to God. They didn't turn to God's prophet, but they actually just turned to each other and came up with, this is what we should do. I mean, this is brilliant. Let's go, why haven't we thought of this? The Ark of the Covenant, hello. Remember the Jordan River. Remember Jericho. This is no ordinary chest. We need to bring the Ark of the Covenant and our fortunes will be reversed. They asked the right question. Why did the Lord bring defeat? But they didn't seek God's answer to the question. Even wicked kings that were really bad before they went into battle, would seek a prophet and ask, what should we do? What does God say? Not the people here. In fact, they forgot the word of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God is very clear in this segment of scripture, and he talks about, look, if you obey my commands, there's gonna be all kinds of good things, blessing. If you disobey, it's not gonna be so good. Like in verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You wanna know why we've been defeated? Samuel would have said, because you're not obeying the covenant. So the irony is, they grabbed the box, the Ark of the Covenant, all along thinking that's good enough, even if we're breaking the covenant. And our religious leaders are in shambles and we're following in their ways, worshiping the sun god Baal and the moon goddess Astra. They were disconnected from God, from his word. They didn't even think to turn to him. They're spiritually far and down on their luck. 
they turn it all into rabbit foot religion. They grab for the symbol. They place their courage in the symbol. And so remember their response when the Ark of the Covenant comes. Do you remember what it was? A what? So much so that the ground shook. A huge roar. Freaked out the Philistines. False hope. You know, the object of our faith is the essence. A lot of people have faith. A lot of people trust in things. It's the object of our faith that makes all the difference. The object of their faith was not in God. It was in actually something that they thought they could bring into the picture, into a symbol of God's very presence. And so here they are, chapter 7, we'll read about them. They're worshiping not just Yahweh at Shiloh at the religious feast, but up on the high places on the hills around town, like all the surrounding peoples in the land there, the Canaanites, they've got their Baal, and they've got their Ashtra, and they're worshiping the sun and the moon, and they're mixing it all together, because maybe that'll just all work together for good. And in taking the ark, I think it's safe to say they believed that they had God. I mean, how could God not defend his very presence and glory? If we take him into battle, he will have to defend himself. He's going to have to show up. Little did they know, God was willing to suffer great dishonor for their good in the midst of this crazy time. So there's another thing that they did is they lost sight of who God is that he's holy, and that he is a covenant, faithful, keeping God, that he's in control even when they think he's gone and out of the situation and he can't at all be in control if they just suffered all this defeat. Are you kidding me? How could God be the God of Israel and just have 34,000 people die? Our leader, the priest, the ark stolen. He's a faithful God. He's in charge. So the mistake is costly, right? This whole thing of not seeking God, but trusting in the symbol, placing their trust in the ark, losing sight of who God is and who they are themselves. And, and the damage is huge. The results were huge. 30,000 die, plus the four. The ark's captured. Hophni and Phinehas, the priesthood is gone. And then Hophni's wife dies delivering the son that just kind of gives a new title of the chapter of their history, Ichabod. Where is the glory, literally? The glory is departed, she said. The glory is gone. God has left his people. So when we think about the lessons learned, it's good to remember that the Old Testament, like all of scripture, is God's word. It's inspired, it's breathed out by God, and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, letting us know if we've crossed the line, off the line, off the mark, for correcting us, getting us back in line, and training us to do right in this world where we love God with all of our heart and our neighbors ourselves so that we're prepared and equipped to do all the good things that God is calling us to do. And so the Old Testament scriptures are continually teaching us and they're giving us words of rebuke and correction. And here's what Paul said to his friends at the church in Corinth. He says, talking about the Old Testament, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. 
on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Fancy way of saying, for those of us who live in the last days, between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So the lesson learned here is not something that we need to dream up. What's the lesson learned? Because they learned their lesson. And we learn about it in the chapters that follow. So let me chase us to chapter 7 by giving us overviews of 5 and 6. So in chapter 5, the Philistines, fresh off of victory, have captured the ark. That is, they have captured the, the deity of God's people. And so they put the ark of the covenant right in their temple of Dagon, their God, as a sign of, our God, just kick your, you know what I'm saying. And we're, we're, we're the boss, man. We, we've got the right God and, and we rule. All right, so they're high on their victory. So the next morning, they just go back and check in, see how things are at at the temple. And here's what they find. Dagon has done a face plant. In other words, it's God's humorous way saying, even, even this, this statue is worshiping Yahweh. His head is broken off, his hands are broken off, and there he is on the threshold, right as they walk in. There's Dagon. Not only is Dagon toppled, but people start getting these tumors and people start dying. And there's great fear in the city of Ashdod. And they go, oh my gosh, we got to get rid of this thing. This thing is not, this is cursing us. So they send it to their friends at one of the other five Philistine capital cities, uh, Gad. And they say to the people, Gad, you take it. And Gad says, okay, we'll take it only to find out tumors are breaking out, people are dying. They go, we don't want this thing. So they send it to the next city called Ekron, another capital city, and everybody's just going freaking out. We're all gonna die because people were dying. And so they, they call their religious leaders together and the religious leaders start telling them about Israel's history. This is just wild. So the pagan priests of Dagon are telling the Philistines the history of God's faithfulness when he rescues his people from Egypt. And he says, guys, this is not a time to repeat the mistake of Pharaoh who hardened his heart and didn't let his people go. We need to let this chest go. I know it's cool. It's full of cool things. It's wrapped in gold. It's worth a lot of money. But guys, let's not harden our hearts. Let's just send it back. And so they say, what should we do? Well, then they give the instructions of how they put it on a cart and they have these oxen go and we'll know that we're freed from this curse if they get into Israel's territory. It gets into this town called Beth Shemesh. And the people like they're going, this is awesome. The ark has come back. 70 people, they'll start looking into it because they're curious. Man, we've heard about it. We've never seen it. Let's peek. Don't look, Marianne, ring a bell. Anyway, 70 people Raiders of the Lost Ark. I know, that's a reference, sorry. Um, 70 people, the text says, looked in and they died. So the people of Beth Shemesh are saying, we're, we're undone. We, how can we be in, the, this is their words, how can we stand in the presence of holy God? So they send it to the people of Kiriam uh, Jerim is the name of the town, where it stayed for 20 years. At the beginning of chapter 7, we read that the people, having seen now 70 people die, the people have this revival where they go, we want to turn back to God. Samuel says, are you serious? Or are you just talking about it? Do you really want to turn back to God? Because here's what it's going to take. You're going to have to turn away from all this other garbage that you've mixed in. You've got to tear down 
all this idol worship that you've had for the Baal and the Astra, no more of the high places, tear it down, and you've got to devote yourself wholly. And then he called God's people together at this place called Mitzvah, this, this place where a covenant was made a long time ago between Jacob and Laban, which basically said, God's watching over us at this place for the vows that we're about to make. And he called the people to confess and to fast. And as they're gathered at Mitzpah, having this unbelievable revival going on, people getting right with God, all of a sudden the Philistine leaders go, hey, they've all gathered at Mitzpah. Let's go attack, attack them once more. And so right in the middle of this, as the army is attacking, and so now we got the same situation. Here's what they do, and they get it right. They say to Samuel, cry out to the Lord for us that he would save us. And he offers a sacrifice. And he prays to Almighty God. And in the midst of that worship service where they're not doing anything in terms of preparing for battle, God sends thunder in such a way that the whole Philistine army is confused, it's chaotic, and they are routed, just routed by the Israelites. They learn their lesson. That when you're facing an enemy, when you've experienced defeat in your life, turn to God. Plead for mercy for God. Trust in him. There was nothing else they could do. They tried it all. And maybe that's where you are today. Here's how one scholar put it. If you want to summarize the lesson here, when the people of God follow the word of God, actually seek the word of God, right? And follow the word of God and, and obey the will of God, which is combined with the word of God, right? His commands. God will bring victory and strength to fight our enemies. That's the lesson. So when we're facing a big challenge, when we're on the other side of a defeat, something hard, this, this is what we learn. Maybe that's right, right where you're at. Maybe this week, this is gonna be exactly the word that you need for a friend who's right there. Or who knows what can happen this week in our own lives. We gotta remember First of all, that there, there will be a tendency and there will be a temptation to grab something more than God. Maybe it's a symbol. It's this kind of superstitious move here where we, we think we could manipulate God. It's far easier than obedience and reflection and confession and repentance. So don't swap your relationship with God, my relationship with God, for this rabbit foot religion. Now, let me, let me suggest some things that may, key word is may, be examples of this. Because it's pretty hard to think about the Ark of the Covenant with all its uniqueness in history for the people of God. And what would it be like an Ark of the Covenant thing for us today? It's a lot of a head scratcher, to be honest. But let's just say these things might be. Remember the Ark was a gift from God. Remember the Ark was a very holy thing. And yet it got twisted, right, for their own advantage. So is it possible that actually this could be one of those things, the Bible? If I carry the Bible, have a Bible around, that's just, you know, that's a good thing to do. Or maybe you're not like that, but you go, you know, I just, I need to be in the Word. I've heard, said, I've said myself, hey, sometimes when relationships in a hard place, like a marriage relationship, I'll go, you know what? 
This is on me, my bad. I haven't been in the word. So I think we know what we're saying here, but let's be a little more theologically accurate. What we should be saying is, the word hasn't been active in my life. I haven't been living out the word. So some of us think that, you know, if, if I just read the Bible, you know, it's going to be good for me. Reading the Bible is good for us as long as we're saying, God, this is your word and let it shape my life. I want to do your word. James says, don't be just a hearer of the word, James 1.22, but be a doer of the word. So this is going to mess with some of our categories because we're going, huh, the Bible? Yeah, the Bible. Let me give you another one. Throwing a five in the offering, or maybe it's a good day, and you said, nah, times are tough, man. I really need some help, and I'm dropping a 20. I'm dropping a 20 in the offering box. And it's this whole thing is, I'm going to give something to God. It's this transaction here. I'm giving something to you, God, and now show me some love. I'm in the game. Here's a five, 20, maybe more. And my motivation is not out of love, recognizing it's all his. This is an act of worship. This is an act of growing my trust in God. But I'm going to give because God's going to give back to me. It's that kind of thing. I told you I'm going to mess with your minds here. Maybe it's wearing a cross. Think it's going to bring me good luck. Rather than remembering, the cross should remind us not just of Christ, but how we're to live our lives, giving our lives away to other people. Speaking of the cross, what about communion? Paul says people in his day were guilty of taking communion as he describes it in an unworthy way to the degree that he says, and that explains why some of you are sick and some in your church have died. What? Died because they took communion the wrong way? That's exactly what the word says. Well, I got, I just, you know, if I take communion... If I take communion, I need to take, take communion. Because, you know, if I don't take communion, it's not going to go well. Taking holy things and turning them into some superstitious symbol. Making a vow to God. Going to church. Any superstition mixed in. Are we guilty of treating holy things with contempt? Do we have our own kind of rally cap? I was thinking of rally caps this week. So I looked up some images, and I didn't know. I just thought there was one kind of rally cap. And so rally cap is what you do when a team's behind. And typically what I think of as rally cap is you turn the baseball cap inside out, and you wear it backwards. Little did I know, man, you can do this duck thing. So this is an inside out. This is like fold it in half and have it, you know, the bill going up like this. And, you know, there's all these versions of rally caps. And trust me, if we're not mindful, we have our own version of a rally cap when things are down that aren't really fundamentally connected with seeking God, aligning our will and heart with his, seeking his help in times of need. So remember to be aware of the tendency or the temptation to turn toward something superstitious, the symbol, rather than the God himself. There's, there's a second lesson. Remember that when the word of God is rare in a people's life, in a church's life, in our personal life, in a marriage's life, in a family's life, well, the price, price to be paid is big. It's not enough to say, I know this is the Bible. I know what it says. Is the word of God rare in our lives? 
And in times of trouble, the right question to ask is not, what do you think I should do? We ask that too many times in a tough circumstance. We're wanting some bit of wisdom. The question we should ask to a person who knows and loves God and is familiar with his word is, where in God's word might I find an illustration, an example, a principle, or even an outright command that bears witness on this situation and how I ought to respond to it? That's the right question. What does God think about this situation? What does God's word say about this? Now, what do you think about it? Third lesson is remember who God is. He's holy. And when you remember and live before God, it's not just your buddy and friend, but almighty, holy God. Man, it helps us understand who we are. It helps us understand that we cannot ever turn God into some kind of fetish or trinket when we see him for who he is. It's interesting that the revival and the people turn back to God right after the 70 people in Beth Shemesh died looking into the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God. Psalm 78 talks about God's holiness and how he was angered by the people of God. This is, so this is Psalm 78 is actually a commentary so sometimes I'll say this, you don't have to interpret the Bible. The Bible actually interprets itself. Here's a classic example. Psalm 78 tells us exactly what happened and why and God's response to it of 1 Samuel 4. They angered him, the people of God in, in Samuel's time, with their high places, those worship places, the Baal and the Ashtoreth. They aroused a jealousy with their idols, so they're syncretistic. When God heard them, he was furious. He rejected Israel completely. He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had set up among humans. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of the enemy. He gave his people over to the sword. He was furious with his inheritance. God is holy. And we must live in light of that. And as we say that, we also understand that he is loving, that he is merciful, that he is faithful to his covenant. When the people return, he extends mercy and grace to them. He not only brings deliverance from the enemy then, it says throughout the whole life of Samuel, never again did the Philistines ever defeat the Israelites. Not only that, that the cities that the Philistines had captured were returned. God brought back the losses in his mercy that he didn't have to do his people who turned their back on him. He's merciful, he's faithful, he's loving. But here's something we don't want to miss. God was willing to suffer shame and humiliation. Here, look at it on the screen. God was willing to suffer shame rather than have his people carry on a false relationship with him. How so? The Ark of the Covenant. God's presence, that the, the notion that Almighty God created the universe could be captured by anybody. And he allowed that to happen, the shame on God, the mocking that the Philistines just joined in on. What a joke, God! Look at this. We got them. It's a piece of cake. We routed them. He was willing to undergo shame and humiliation to bring his people back to himself. If that's not a straight line to the cross, I don't know what else is. 
where the Son of God, the holy, innocent Son of God, was falsely arrested, endured this bogus trial where they mocked him, spit on him, humiliated the soldiers, did more. They beat him. They flogged him to an inch of his life. They stripped him of all his clothes. He hung naked on a Roman cross where people laughed even as his disciples wept. He was willing. It was his will to suffer shame that we would understand that there is only one hope in the face of an enemy. There is only one way to turn after we've had a defeat in our life and it's to our covenant-making, faithful God who endured the shame of the cross to bring us back to him. Have you ever thought about that? When when we're humiliated, does it just make you go, oh, that's Christ, tenfold, hundredfold, a millionfold? That he, he didn't have to do that. He chose to do that out of his great love because he's a covenant-keeping God. And he is merciful to those who turn to him, not the symbols. These were religious people. They were in Shiloh worshiping at all the feasts, but they mixed it all in with all this other stuff. And, and we could be guilty of that today. Oh, may we be a people who turn back with all of our hearts every day, in every way, serving him alone. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for anyone here who's never done that, turn to you. And maybe they're just on the backside of something really, really hard. And out of your mercy and grace, you've allowed them to go through that that they might come into a saving relationship with you. I pray that you grant them faith, the humility to own any wrongdoing in their own mind and heart. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would regularly be turning away from these things that might even be good things, might even be holy things, and putting our trust in those things, thinking somehow we, we get some good things going for us. Lord, help us, forgive us for trying to manipulate you and not see you as holy and sovereign. Help us to believe that you're on the throne when we're on, uh, in a chaotic time. Help us to keep turning to you for help and for mercy, for grace and strength each and every day of our life. We pray this all in Christ's name for his honor and glory. Amen.